Um, we have a, a lot, we did, I mean, there's a lot of people in here today, good, but there's, I'll tell you what, there's, um, okay, does anybody think they're at the nine o'clock service? Like, did that, did that get anybody? I couldn't figure out the math, but that's how that works, right? Like, if you, if you missed that, you would be here now thinking it was nine. So, um, I never can remember how that works, but it, regardless, we're glad you're here. Um, and we can greet those who think they're coming to the 1030 service as we leave in a little while. So, <laughs> um, Hey, and you mentioned, you heard um, John reference. We've had a lot of people. I know you've got people in your family, your friends who are sick this week. Um, pretty much everyone's getting taken out at some point, it seems like. And um, so we need to be in prayer for them. And uh, we've got um, one of the people who is, is really integral to the way we do church on Sunday mornings here is David Self, who he puts together a team of people who work in the booth. And then he usually is up there leading at least one of the services, often both of services and uh, he's not, he was another one who got taken out by being sick today, so these guys have uh, stepped up with very short notice um, to, to, to lead in new ways, and it's always a blessing to get to do ministry with your family. Like, that's a cool thing. If you've never gotten the chance to do that, train up your children so you can do ministry alongside of them as well, but Mark is the one in control of the uh, screens today. So again, a huge sign of trust is to put your teenage child in charge of your experience today. So... Um, this is, this is revenge opportunity for Mark for all, for many years of discipline. So, but I know him well enough to know he probably won't take it, please. So the, um, we, uh, uh, talking today about suicide, I did, it did strike me that, um, this will probably be the best sermon on suicide you've ever heard. So it's also probably the only, that's why, that because it's probably the only sermon on suicide. As I've, as some people have talked to me about doing a sermon focusing on the biblical view of suicide, the most common response has been people saying, I've, I've never heard of anybody doing that. And, uh, and so one is, I, I want our church to be a place where people know we, we, we talk about real stuff. I mean, it's, this isn't just some theoretical concept. This Christian faith that we have isn't just some esoteric you know, conversation up here. It's, it's real life. And if you didn't know this, then spending more time reading Scripture will really help you. This we're going to teach stuff from Scripture, and what's cool is you, you don't have to, like, you don't have to manhandle Scripture in order to make it about real life, because it is about real life. It's not, it's not some outdated religion. It's not, it's not even a very good, it's not really in a religion the way we practice it anyway. It's certainly not outdated. And so um, it just seemed appropriate. I know there have been a, a number of kind of high-profile suicides in Tyler recently, and um, it struck me that it was probably time for us to talk about this. Um, intentional, the, what suicide is, by the way, is uh, the, the technical concept. So homicide is to kill another human. Um, side is the, is the word that means to kill or to, to take the life from. And, and then uh, homicide, so homo sapiens is what humans are called. And so that's what that means. So the same thing, suicide means my own self. Um, and so suicide means to kill my own self. Um, you probably know that conceptually, but that's what it means. So doing a little research, according to New York Times, there was a really a big study done from 1999 to 2014 to study those 15 years about suicide. And as of 2014, we had the highest suicide rates in 30 years in the United States. Um, it's always one of those fascinating things to me that, you know, things, of course, are all getting better, right? Everybody's, everybody's getting better. We have more technology and more connected and all that kind of stuff. And yet, somehow, that's not curing things for us. Um, suicide rate for women has jumped uh, 63%. Though for women 45 to 60, age 45 to 64, 
has jumped by 63% during that time period, 43% for men of the same age range during that time period. Um, so from girls, girls age 10 to 14, in, in uh, 1999, there were 50 girls in the United States from 10 to 14 who took their own lives. Teenage girls are famous for attempting suicide um, and also famous for not succeeding at it. Um, that's, that's part of the, the odd demographic about teenage girls is they're one of the highest when it comes to attempting suicide, but they're one of the lowest when it comes to being successful. But even so, age 10 to 14, it increased from 50 in 1999 to 150 in 2014. That's not a big number, but it is a big jump. It's a big increase. Something's there. Um, in 2014, 42,773 people died from suicide just in that one year. So about 58,000 Americans died in the entire Vietnam War. 42,773 people died at their own hands. And this is what we know of. By the way, only God knows how many suicides there are in the United States, how many of the car accidents and, and accidental things are actually somebody taking their own life or being so risky that that, that happened. It's, one of the, it's called, often called a silent epidemic because it's not something that most people are comfortable talking about. It's, there's not a lot of sermons about it, for example. Even social justice people don't talk about suicide very much. Um, what we, for example, one of the things we hear about is gun violence in the United States. It's a very popular thing for people to talk about. Um, in 2014, there were 10,945 gun homicides in the United States. A quarter as many said, were suicides. Four times more suicides than gun homicides. And we don't hear about that very much. By the way, of that 42,773 people who committed suicide in 2014, 7,400 of them were veterans. Um, it is certainly considered a chronic issue for veterans. Um, the number is about 20 a day, as I understand it. Um, veterans die at their own hands. In the United States. Um, maybe most significant that a lot of people don't realize, and it teaches us a lot about suicide, is that the highest suicide rate is still men over age 75. It, it, has, it almost always is, um, especially if you include 65 and up. It, it's just incredibly the most common age demographic for suicide, and I'll talk about part of why I think that is coming up. And according to the Tyler Morning Telegraph, East Texas has somewhat worse numbers than the rest of state of Texas, and the state of Texas has somewhat worse numbers than the nation as a whole when it comes to suicide. But this is a super complex issue. As we talk through this, I hope you will hear that we're not going to come to some easy answer. There's not going to be some simple little solution that solves the suicide problem in the United States. And anytime you hear a simplified answer, you can count on it being wrong. Um, there's a lot of little mantras that people throw out there kind of immediately when it comes to suicide. Very often being very, very critical of the person who committed suicide. Um, there's, a, there's a strong sense of they took a coward's way out or they were being selfish or, or something like that. And I'm sure that that is the case sometimes. Um, but to, to apply that across the board to people who take their own life is error. And we know it's incredibly complex and why people are motivated to do it. And, and therefore, what type of intervention can help, if any intervention at all can help. Um, we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, so what makes, uh, that's one of those, the, the truth is, make sure I make this clear, of all the different factors in suicide, and there are many of them, depression, anxiety, addiction, illness, secrets, trauma, even surprises, things like that, that that go into that, suicidal thinking is merely a psychological state. And it's a psychological state that any human being can find themselves in. 
any human being can find themselves in the psychological state of suicidal thinking. Um, if you, I'll give you an example. So a client years and years ago, this was a fascinating little experience, um, that a client that I had years and years ago who we could barely keep him alive. It was, he came three or four times to see me and we, it was when I was in Fort Worth, and it was like a daily thing, just trying to keep him alive one more day, one more day, one more day. And friends would constantly go surprise him at his house and uh, the percentage of the mass, the majority of the time when they would show up, he would be in the process of trying to take his own life. And, um, and he, he came three or four times. He never could, he never paid. He never could do any of that kind of stuff. And he just kind of vanished and we called him and he didn't return calls. And so honestly, my assumption was he'd finally succeeded. And then about two years later, he shows up sitting in the, in the waiting room and said, hey, I was waiting for you to get done with your client because I wanted to one, pay you because I can now afford to pay you. And two, let you know that I'm okay. I was like, that's I appreciate that because I just I honestly I'd assumed that you had finally figured out how to take your life and not make people stop you. And he said, well, it's an interesting story because he, see, he had showed no signs of depression, suicide, anxiety, nothing for years and then suddenly had started this, this process of being self-destructive. He said, well, I was going to go get an x-ray for something and, um, and before they did the x-ray or before they did the MRI or whatever it was, they decided to, to check my body for metal. And what they discovered was that, and we had linked this together but never could make it work, is that he had had a major surgery, and then after the major surgery, he had started this path down depression and self-destruction very precipitously, very quickly. And um, he said, so what happens is when they did a check to make sure before they put me in the MRI machine that I didn't have any metal in me, is that they discovered that during surgery, the doctor had left multiple implements inside of my body, including a, like a two-foot metal rod that had thrown off my biochemistry so badly that it had, it had totally messed up my system, and that's what had led me to the point of being suicidal. And by the way, why I can afford to pay you now, <laughs> he said. So, uh, and so literally, it was a psychological state that, that a person was like, he, he was, there was nothing wrong except just an, a mistake on the part of some medical professional and that, that, so that led him into that psychological state. We are all cre frail creatures. We're all creatures of dust, and that includes our brains. And so the, the truth is it's a state that any of us could find ourselves in. And if you say, I I've, I've never would think that way, I'd never have thought that way, well, maybe you won't, but you could. Um, it's, it's, it's healthy for us to be humble enough to recognize that none of us are beyond any of the psychological states um, that we can have. We are frail creatures, and our, our brains are frail. And so just, just as one to know that this is something that when we discuss this, we are all in this together, even if, even if up until now you've never experienced that. And by the way, the majority of us have. Somewhere between the majority and the universal, at some point, we have felt that feeling of being so isolated or so angry or so hurt or so something that we've considered it. Um, and so just to be aware that that's there. And so one of the questions that we're going to discuss here in a second is, does someone who commits suicide, do they go to hell automatically? We'll discuss that in a second. But I will tell you, this is such a complex question, even biblically, that it's almost as hard a question to answer is, is suicide a sin at all from the biblical perspective? We're going to look at some of the, there's at least four examples and possibly five, maybe more that we have in Scripture. And so we're going to look at them and you're going to see this is a complex conversation that's much harder for us than we think it is. What makes suicide sin is the fact that we believe that life is sacred. That's a biblical picture. By sacred, I mean holy. It is, a, it is a gift of God's. It is His to give and His to take, and therefore not ours to mess with. 
That's exactly what he teaches. So literally, in, in Genesis 9-6, we literally have a passage where God has just wiped out almost the entirety of humanity. He has just drowned almost every human on the planet. And then he comes to Noah and says, By the way, you better not be taking human life. It's out of your hands. I created man in my image. You don't get to take human life. I do that. That's my call, God is saying. Because we don't have the authority, we don't have the understanding, and that would apply not only to the lives of others, but to our own life. That except in situations when God instructs it, or when God would teach it, we don't take human life. And there are some He allows for, absolutely. We, we could discuss that be a just war conversation or something like that. There are times when God calls for it. But in general, humans don't get to make that decision. If God wants to wipe out people, He does. That's His right. It's His image. It's His. He's bought us, made us, created us. But we don't get to make that choice, even about ourselves. That's where it really comes down to. It isn't that life is awesome. That living on earth is awesome and that's why we don't take our own life. Because sometimes life on earth isn't awesome. Can we all just agree with that? We all know it's true. Could we agree with that? That that's not why we don't. It's because it's none of our business. It's not our authority. We don't have the authority to do this outside of God's mindset. That being said, and I do believe suicide, generally as a general statement, would be sin. That being said, it is still just a sin. It is still one of the things that Jesus Christ came and died for. It isn't the somehow the magical secret hell bullet that sends us straight to hell. It would make no sense theologically. Let me tell you where that came from. And by the way, a lot of people in the Baptist church, even in evangelical and Protestant churches, will teach that when you commit, if you, if you commit suicide, you go straight to hell. Um, I would love to see their biblical evidence for it. There's none. Instead, let me tell you where this comes from. This comes from the Catholic roots, the Roman Catholic roots of Christianity. So Christianity was created, and after, after about a thousand years, there was a big split between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. Yes, we've been splitting for a long, long time as Christians. And so there was a big problem there. Well, one of the teachings from the early church was this divide, division in the Roman Catholic Church was there's a division between sins. You have mortal sins. Those are the really big, bad sins. And then you have venial sins, and those are sins that aren't quite so big and bad. Okay? And the division, honestly, is rather arbitrary, but it's there in, in the Roman Catholic theology. So here's what they taught. They taught that if you, and over time, this became ugly, by the way. But So over time, they began to teach. So mortal sins, if you die with a mortal sin on your record, unconfessed, unforgiven, mortal sin on your record, you went straight to hell. Automatic. If you died with some venial sins that are a problem, but they're not quite so bad on your record, then you, you didn't go straight to hell. You probably were kind of locked in purgatory. They, they created the theology of purgatory, which was this intermediate state that you're kind of either sinking towards hell or rising towards heaven. And, and then over time, that became even more uh, misabused and, misused and abused, where it became where if people prayed for you after you were dead, they might help you rise in purgatory towards heaven, or if they failed to pray for you, they could cause you to sink down towards hell. And then over time, it became even worse, which was if they give money, then you could rise towards heaven. And if you failed to give money, you could sink towards hell. And you could see how that would be abused um, by anybody. And that was during the medieval era. So you'll know the Roman Catholic Church no longer teaches the universal condemnation of people who commit suicide. Not even the Roman Catholic Church teaches that anymore. What they teach is that someone, what they now teach is that is someone fully of their own faculties, 
selfishly, rebelliously were to take their own life, that would be a mortal sin and they would go to hell. Well, try to ask yourself, how many people commit suicide that that would apply to? Almost none, right? I mean, almost by definition, that would, not, that would be a very rare sin to be committed like that, which, again, I'm glad that, that our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters have acknowledged that there's more to this than just a simple medieval answer. Now, that being said, that's where that comes from. So, um, we know that it is not our merit or lack of merit that sends us to hell. None of us. Uh, the fact that we are born in sin. The work of Jesus Christ is what rescues us from hell. And, and Jesus Christ, it, it strikes me, I mean, it's so many different places we could go with this, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to go to all of them. But this one, it is fascinating to me that Jesus' last words on the cross weren't, now get to work, or now you better really hustle, or look busy because I'm coming back, or something like that. It was... It is finished. The work of redemption was done. People who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And the merit or lack of merit from that point forward or from that point before is not what saves you or condemns you. What's going to get you through judgment, I promise, is not going to be your merit. And what causes you to fail at judgment, I promise you, won't be because you committed suicide. It will be because you lack the right standing with Almighty God purchased for you by Jesus Christ. That's what can get you condemned. But, but if we put our faith in Christ, no matter what our psychological state is at the end of our lives, He's already made that purchase. He's already accomplished that. It is finished. It's done. He's the one who makes that call. So no, I can't find any scriptural evidence that people... If, when people talk about the unforgivable sin, <coughs> they should be talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the only time that Jesus uses that kind of terminology. And it's hard enough to understand that. So it would be nice if it was an, you know, people, people just want it to be easy, so this makes sense. Oh, if you commit suicide, you go to hell. Well, if you commit suicide, you might go to hell. It depends on whether or not you've put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you. If you have, then you won't. He doesn't lose anyone no matter what their psychological state is at the end of their lives. But there's no easy answers. I will have a couple of generalities, but there's no easy answers. They'll be, they will be wrong when we get there. So when we face suicide around us, we struggle. Because, of course, we always judge ourselves in reverse. We feel responsible for things that things we could have, when they're things we could have done. That's part of our problem with suicide. We think, oh, I should have done something differently. The problem is we didn't know that when we were making the decision. And so if someone says, well, I, you know, I was in a car accident, I turned right, and I was in a car accident, I should have turned left. Well, maybe you wouldn't have been in the car accident. Maybe, maybe you would have been in a different one. We can't know. We do a bad job when we judge in reverse. Here's one of the things that I will reflect back to someone who, is, who has had a family member who has committed suicide, and they're saying, I should have done something differently. I should have... I should have, I should have, I should have. Which, by the way, is totally rational that we do that. It's part of our grieving process to figure out what we could have done differently. Here's what I would ask them. So if you knew, if you had known the day before this person committed suicide, like if I could travel back in time and say, hey, I happen to know that this family member, this friend is going to commit suicide tomorrow. But if you'll go visit them today and talk to them, they won't. How many of us wouldn't? We'd be like, no, I'm kind of busy today. No, I've got other priorities today. 
Of course not. We'd drop whatever we were doing and we'd go to that person and we would tell them. Which is all the evidence you need that if you had known, you would have done it. If you had known what to do to protect that person from taking their own life, you would have done it. Rest in that. Rest in the knowledge that if you had known, you would have. Now, if you did something wrong, you did something wrong. That's the way that works. If, if I drive drunk and I don't kill anybody, I'm wrong. If I drive drunk and I kill somebody, I'm wrong. I'm not more or less wrong. There's bigger consequences one way or the other. I can evaluate that. We should be able to evaluate ourselves, that kind of stuff. But the truth is, when it comes to judgment, the Apostle Paul has this great passage in 1 Corinthians 4 where he talks about how he doesn't even judge himself because he's no good at it. He acknowledges, I can't judge other people. I can't even judge me well. I count on Christ to judge me. He knows. Good thing to remember. So settle in your heart. If you had known, you probably would have done something. All right, now let's look at the scriptures about this. We have four. I'm going to look at four. There's probably five suicides in the Bible, um, but I'm going to look at these four major ones. Who is someone who committed suicide in the Bible that you know of? Isn't that amazing? Judas. Everyone goes to Judas immediately. This is part of a challenge because that kind of assigns a person to suicide, right? The same kind of person who takes 30 pieces of silver and turns over Jesus Christ to the Romans and the Jews, that's the kind of person who commits suicide. Right? That kind of makes those linkages in our mind. But do you know why Judas committed suicide? Matthew 27, 3. Yeah. Somebody said one of them. When Judas the betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. So it's almost like Judas finally has a noble moment when he realizes he's done wrong. Now, how much of that? The motivation, remember, we're humans and things like suicide are very complex. Was it grief? Was it despair? Was it regret? Was it the fear of failure? Just straight up disappointment? We don't know what was going on inside of his heart except that he realized he had somehow done wrong. And so his consequence of that was to take his own life. By the way, his mistake was that final step. Think about the story between him and the Apostle Peter. So similar. He betrayed Jesus. He messed up. He realized it, had a shocking, sudden moment of realization. Luckily, Peter doesn't act in that shocking moment. It's a great, great guideline, by the way. When you have that shocking, sudden moment... And all of a sudden you're filled with despair and hopelessness because of some tiny new piece of information that you have no idea what to do. The correct answer at that moment is do nothing. Wait. Let things settle out. It's a great little rule in life. When you have that shocking moment, wait just a little bit. We don't know what was going on with him. All of it. Because it's complex. But notice what Peter does. Peter waits. And in the end, Peter comes back and Jesus restores him. I believe that's what would have happened with Judas. That's my personal opinion. I know Judas is condemned by Jesus in so many different ways, and yet <clears throat> I think it's because Jesus at that point knew what was coming. I really believe. One of the things we know about God is what Jonah says about God. Remember the story of Jonah? That, that, that God tells Jonah, hey, I'm going to destroy the Ninevites in 40 days, and Jonah's like, good, because I hate those people. I want them all dead. And God says, well, I'm going to send you to go warn them. 
And Jonah says, oh, see, see, that's how you do this. You, you say you're going to wipe them out, but then you send me to go warn them. And here's what I know about you. You say you're going to wipe them out, but if I warn them and they repent, you will relent. You won't kill them. I know how this works, so I'm not going to warn them because I want them dead. I hate these people. That was his. Jonah knew God well enough to know what happens when someone, no matter how far down the path they are. And listen, the Ninevites were an awful people. They were the, the leaders of the Assyrians who were an awful people. And, and, but, but Jonah, no, see, it doesn't matter how awful somebody is. I really think this is probably one of those examples. If Judas had chosen differently and come back to Jesus and said, just waited just a couple of days, Jesus would have been back. And he'd fall on his face. I think, do we see from the character of God that, that that would have been, even his betrayal would have been forgiven? And who knows, maybe it was. Only God can decide that. Another one you've probably never heard of is Ahithophel. He was a counselor of David. Um, of King David. And, and when Absalom rebelled against King David, Ahithophel, who was a brilliant advisor, went with Absalom. We don't know if he was choosing the winning team. We don't know what he thought he was doing, but he went with Absalom instead. Um, I'm going to try to limit how many times I say Ahithophel because it's hard every single time. Um, I'll start stumbling over it. But he's such a good advisor that David and his men are, are horrified that Ahithophel has gone over to Absalom. This could spell huge trouble for them. And by the way, it would have. Uh, to, to, to shorthand it, David and his people come up with a, a, a solution through, through help with God so that Absalom won't listen to Ahithophel. So sure enough, Ahithophel gives Absalom some great advice. It probably would have meant the destruction of David and the end of the whole thing. But Absalom doesn't listen to Ahithophel. He doesn't listen and thereby makes huge mistakes and David is able to escape and defeat him. But listen to this in 1 Samuel 17, 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey. There's something kind of chilling, by the way, about this verse, how calm this is. He saddled his donkey and he went home to his own city and he set in house in order and he hanged himself and he died and he was buried in the tomb of his father. I think this gives us insight into why older men are often those who commit suicide. The value of life has come in their status or in their job or in their performance. And that's been taken. No one's listening to Ahithophel anymore. So he has no point to live. He's wrong. He just thinks that. His significance, gone. His shame, his regret. All those different feelings are there. Okay, by now you've probably thought of a couple of other people. Who's another one who committed suicide? Saul did. We'll get to him in a second. Samson, good. In Judges 16, we find Samson calls to the Lord and says, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. When you study Samson, you're studying the most brilliant study in all of history of a narcissistic thinker. Samson is so far down this path. He, he, it just Even in this moment, as noble as we would love to turn his sacrifice here at the end of his life, the truth is it's out of revenge for the loss of his eyes. God accomplishes mighty things through him, but Samson seems to be kind of the, the weakest link in the whole process. But Samson grasped the two middle pillars of where the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. A suicide trainer uh, class that I went to referred to Samson as the first suicide bomber. 
He's the first man to kill himself in an effort to destroy his enemies. Um, but what, what motivated him? See how, how different his motivation is than Ahithophel's or Judas's? Revenge, anger, rage, maybe even a greater cause. In fact, if you really want to understand just how complex this conversation is about suicide, think about this. Isn't a soldier who jumps on a grenade committing suicide? Hadn't thought about it like that, huh? And yet, it's like that's something that, that we think is noble and right. There's a place for that, for self-sacrifice, even if it costs you your own life. There's a, there's a sense in which it's such a complex conversation that anytime we want to simplify it, we're just trying to make things easier on ourselves. Let's look at one more, and then I'm going to get driving a little more deeply into that, and that is Saul. 1 Samuel 31, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadah and Malchashua, and the son, who were the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. He means torture him. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So here's Saul in fear of being tortured to death. Listen, Saul's life is over. He knows he's as good as dead. Maybe he's already even been mortally wounded. Here's what's amazing is Saul went to battle that day knowing he was going to die in that battle. The ghost of Samuel had told him, you will die. And Saul went anyway. Maybe the most courageous thing Saul does. His life is, is defined by fear and cowardice, and yet here we have Saul go to battle because he knows he's supposed to, even though he's been told in advance he's going to die. And then he does. In the end, he takes his own life falling on his sword in order to avoid the torture that he knew that his enemies would probably put him through. Fear, despair, and just to avoid pain. The shock of that moment. We know that depression is strongly linked, and we have plenty of depression in the Bible. We see people struggle with it, depressive feelings. In some cases, probably chronically, probably clinically depressed. King David was probably diagnosably clinically depressed. Even Jesus faced moments of what we would call depression. If you're, if you're crying so hard that you're bursting capillaries under the skin and blood is dripping out through your pores, you're not feeling too good. Listen to what David writes in Psalm 142. Maybe this is even the institution of the word depression. Starting about verse 3, When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have set a trap for me. Look to the right and see, and there's none who take notice of me. No, one, no refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. If, you've, if you struggle with depression, you recognize all those words. You've heard them inside your own head as intrusive, repetitive thoughts that won't go away. That's why, that's why this is the symbol for crazy. It's because that's what's going on inside the head of somebody who is dealing with the obsessive thoughts. They won't go away. The rumination continues, and it is intrusive, and nothing you seem to say to yourself makes them go away. That's what you, the, the, those thoughts are feeling. David is surrounded by four to 6,000 people at this time, and he's saying, there's no one here. No one takes notice of me, and no one cares. Verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord, you are my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. The Hebrew word here means indented. Another word for depressed, pushed in. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Isn't that how everything feels when you're depressed? Everything's too strong for me. It's too heavy. It's too much. Bring me out of prison. Depressed people always describe feelings of trapped. 
that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you deal bountifully with me. His son Solomon inherited this. Ecclesiastes 2.17. So I hated my life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after wind. Weariness and mental illness and depression and addictions. I wouldn't have planned for the day I talked about suicide to be a day we all got at least one hour less sleep. But I probably should have. To engage with just that slight feeling of extra weariness. Just a little more tired. What's it like when you have the anxiety tax or the depression tax, T-A-X, that, that people who are anxious and depressed have? Everything takes extra. It takes bonus. If something costs me 20 points of energy, a person carrying 10% anxiety tax, it costs them 22 points. That's what it's like to be anxious or depressed. Is everything just takes a little bit more energy than average. In fact, I was given this picture years ago by somebody. This is, this is just brilliant to me. A, a friend whose father had committed suicide. And so he'd spent years studying this. And then an event happened that suddenly made it make sense to him. So <laughs> you put up that picture. Nope. Next. You missed one. Should be a World Trade Center picture. There you go. <clears throat> he said it struck him when he, was, when he was watching what was going on at the World Trade Center. You remember hearing the stories that there were people who jumped, Right? So there were people who were above the level of the flame that the floor under them was presumably becoming superheated. Thousands of degrees. And they suddenly were struck with really, quite literally, two options. Burn to death or fall to death. But technically speaking, to jump is to commit suicide, isn't it? Even under those conditions, in a technical sense, it would be. But notice, that's not cowardice. It's not selfish. It's not even irrational. When you're down to two options, slower, more painful, more awful death, or quick death, it's not irrational to choose the quick one. It's not even necessarily selfish to do so. It's too complex for us to simplify it. We want to understand the bigness and the hardness and the challenges of all of this. But, but you see how that plays out. And here's what strikes me. As he and I talked about this and really hammered through this, here's what I began to realize. Most of the time, there's a generality, not all the time, but most of the time when people reach the point of being suicidal, what that means is they, have narrowed, they believe that they have come to a situation in life where they're narrowed to two choices. Long, slow, painful, or quick. And that's what they've come to believe. And once you come to believe that, whether it's because the serotonin levels in your brain are all messed up, or it's because of the circumstances around you, or it's a sudden surprise that shocks you and you don't know how to interpret it, whatever it is, when you come down to those two choices, it's not irrational to choose the quick one. And it's possible, very often, by the way, suicidal people will even become to kind of nobilize it, like, it's just easier on everybody if I do this. Now that's almost certainly not true. But once you're there, you feel trapped and stuck there where this is one choice and this is the only other choice. And here's what I've learned. What I've realized is what the truth offers us is more than those two choices. The error isn't in choosing quick when those are the two choices. If we really are in a situation where we're standing in a building and the floor beneath us is beginning to melt the soles of our shoes... And we're going to die that way or we fall. It's not irrational or selfish. Here's the problem. Very rarely do we find ourselves in a situation like that. Very rarely do I find ourselves struck, stuck through with arrows and our enemies are going to come torture us unless we fall on our own sword. That's actually not real. 
most for most of us. Really, it's that we think those are our two choices. And the mistake is in coming to the conclusion that those are our only two choices because they're not. Almost never. Wrestle with it if you get there. Until then, recognize you have more choices than that. One of my things that I do now with people who are suicidal is we start talking about other choices. This, is, this seems almost funny when we do it, and sometimes they even think it's funny, and you may too, but there's something very real about this. I'll ask them, like, what, do you have, what have you always wanted to do but you're afraid to do? So recently, a suicidal person told me, I'm afraid to, I've always been afraid to skydive. It's like, now seems like the time. <laughs> right? I mean, what's going to happen? Shoot doesn't open and you die? Like, you're prepared to go out in a much more boring way than that. And by the way, this person signed up for skydiving. <laughs> and here's what's funny. Going skydiving helped relieve a lot of the suicidal feelings. Why? Well, now there's a whole list of things I can do because... I'm not afraid of dying anymore. I've always wondered about doing this. I was afraid of dying. I've told people before, listen, if you're a Christian and you've got suicidal depression and you're right on the verge, buy a ticket to Saudi Arabia and go be a missionary. Go stand on the street corner somewhere and proclaim Jesus in a Muslim nation. They'll probably kill you for it. If you're not afraid to die, if you're now eager to die, honestly, if you're at that place, then choose, choose another option. And what you'll discover is there's not two options, there's three, four, 12, 6,000. And all of a sudden, when all these other options open up, they begin to help you not choose one of those two that feels like they're the only two. The abundant life that Christ has for us does not mean we won't be depressed. It doesn't even mean we won't be suicidal or we won't have a, a, the psychological state of being suicidal. What it means is that there's a truth that transcends that, which is there's more options. There's an eternal life and an abundant life, helping people get rid of the lie of the only two choices. There's a huge role in this that we can help do. So let me, let me a couple more real quick. Do you know that there's a story of prevention of suicide in the Bible? <laughs> in Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Then the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Now, I don't want to overteach this next little section, but it is kind of cool. Paul cries with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. Now, I don't think that the Bible is intentionally, I don't, I don't think that the author Luke here is saying, I wrote this story to give you help with people who are going to commit suicide. I don't believe that. But the phrase, do not harm yourself, we are all here, is the kind of thing that people who are suicidal sometimes need to hear. We're here. We haven't gone anywhere. God hasn't either. We're here. How can we help? What can we do? By the way, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Because when you discover there's not just two options, but three, that third option begins to seem really attractive. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Neither God nor us has forsaken you. The greatest power at facing suicidal depression is truth. That we tell ourselves the truth. That we tell each other the truth. The truth is that though you feel forsaken by God, He has not forsaken you. Of course, we all feel that sometimes. We're frail creatures. We feel all kinds of stupid stuff. Of course, we feel it sometimes, but that doesn't make it true. 
That's what makes isolation so lethal when it comes to suicide. That we don't, know that we don't have anybody else speaking truth to us. And that internal thinking, those, those spiraling thoughts get stuck and they stay there. And we need somebody else to kick them out. They're kind of like, we, we need other people to kind of be the stick in the spokes, to throw us off the, the, the bike on the same path that when we're just having those conversations that we learn to do that. And that, by the way, is the way you help other people, is you help them challenge their depressing lives. Honestly, some people may be depressed because your life is depressing. If you're living an empty, shallow, kind of meaningless life, depression is the appropriate emotional response. If you're not serving, if you're not helping, if you're not engaging in eternity on a regular basis you should be probably depressed. That's a motivation to change that, to engage in things that last forever and eternal and things that matter the most. We can have great joy and, or contentment at least in remembering that dying is none of our business. That's not, that's not our decision to make. It may not make us feel any better, but, but apparently we're alive because God has something else for us. Because when God no longer has anything else for us, He can take us home. So we don't seek suicide. We don't seek death. We seek life, to suck the marrow out of life, to live without fear, to, as, as the Apostle Paul says, to redeem the time. Or the writer of Hebrews, to redeem the time. Is that in Hebrews or Ephesians? I don't remember now. One of those two. They're both good. <laughs> Side note, I know that we, are, that we are facing in the church that we've had a lot of weariness. Um, we've gone through a lot, a church, a, a transition, um, a, a senior pastor, and um, a capital campaign and all kinds of stuff. And we're kind of probably kind of tired as a congregation, a little bit weary. And we have a couple more things to wrap up um, the whole transition thing. Um, Lord willing, and by the end of, by the, by the beginning of April, we will have wrapped that stuff finally up. And what I think we're going to do soon after that is take a, a few weeks and kind of focus in on refreshing and being refocused and remembering that, that there's a, a refreshment that comes by serving, by, by growing, by like it's, it's, so here's, here's what struck me. Um, I'm a big fan of Dead Poets Society. I was pre-med for a while and realized I had no love or passion for being a, a medical professional. And what helped me do I'd love to say the scripture or God's spirit or something like that helped me, but the truth is it was Dead Poets Society. Um, there's a line in Dead Poets that says, medicine, law, business, and engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry and beauty and romance and love, these are what we stay alive for. So as, as, just very quickly, what struck me was bylaws, laws, legal stuff, voting, managing. These are necessary. These are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain a church. But teaching and discipleship and serving and worship, this is why we go to church. So we can refocus on some of that kind of stuff. Now, I do need to wrap this up. Um, so here's, here's some ideas. When you're feeling this or when someone in your life is experiencing these things, Make sure that you're not filling your heart and mind or ears with anger, rage, depression, hatred, filth, etc. Those will affect you. And they will draw you towards depression, suicidal thinking. If you're listening to hopelessness and meaninglessness all the time, if that's what you're exposing yourself to constantly, it'll begin to affect you. Um, get the negative and the rage out of your life. Forgive and seek forgiveness. The burdens that we carry through the lack of forgiveness and seeking forgiveness are lethal. And sometimes I'm not, not making that cheap. It's not cheap. Sometimes it requires help. We'd love to help. And get help. I mean all kinds of help. Wherever this teaching came from, that, Christ, that being a good Christian means you don't need help, it is a lie from the pits of hell. 
one of Satan's best. The thought that if you're a good Christian, you won't need medical help, right? Because you're strong. No, you're not. None of us are. We are, we are dust. The thought that we somehow are so self-sufficient we wouldn't need help from other people is a lie. Don't buy that. Get medical help. Get counseling help. Get friendship help. Get some kind of help. All of it can be good. Now, if you're depending on it instead of Jesus Christ, of course it's bad. That's how that works. But it's amazing to me when people will say, like, well, if I had enough faith, I wouldn't need an antidepressant. By that same rationality, if you have enough faith, you shouldn't need food. All it is is a biochemical reaction in your body. That's all that food is, too. If you just had enough faith, you should be able to hold your breath. Right? I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an inaccurate. Of course there are people too dependent on it. Of course that's the case. Chuck Swindoll, though, years ago pointed out that when it says anoint, anoint to go to the elders and have them anoint you with oil and pray over you, probably a correct interpretation of that was take your medicine and have someone pray over you. Because that's what they thought medicine, that's what medicine was. And so modern times, we have a more sophisticated view of medicine. There's also nothing wrong with oils. That's a, I, I know I'm, that's a toss out for those of you who are, you know, oil people. But, but the, that's in and of itself, you need to engage with getting help. Don't buy into the lie that if you're strong, you won't need help. It's a lie. Um, make healthy decisions. Work, eat, sleep, exercise. All of those things fight depression, suicidal thinking. Um, learn to speak the truth to yourself and to others. Write it down if you have to and read it later. Um, I, I have had clients who early in the day are, are pretty stable, but late in the day are kind of falling apart. What I tell them is write a letter to your, to your afternoon self in the morning and post it on the refrigerator. Remember, things will be okay tomorrow morning, even though you're losing it tonight. Live in community, not isolation. Live in service to God and others and pray. No matter who runs the study, secular or not, prayer is always one of the top five ways to fight depression. Write the prayer down if you need to. Revisit it and go back and look at it. Write prayers that focus on just things that don't make sense, like thankfulness. Write a whole prayer just on what you're thankful about and come back to it over and over again. You'll be amazed. Again, even the secular psychologists, listen, they don't like it. But the truth is prayer helps. You can experience great relief even in the midst of the challenges. We embrace the fact that we are frail creatures. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's okay that we're weak. There's hope even in the midst of suicidal feelings. Listen to some of the things that David wrote in Psalm 18. John referenced this one earlier. The cords of death encompass me. The torrent of destruction assails me. The cords of the grave or shale entangle me. The snare of death confronts me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry to him reached his ears. Never alone. The 23rd Psalm, one of the best known passages in the whole Bible. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We don't always feel that. We don't always feel that God is with us. It doesn't change whether He is. Psalm 142, I just read it a minute ago, but verse 5 may have slipped your notice. I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. You may feel like you have no portion in the land of the living. 
It may feel like everything has already gone ahead of you to the land of the dead and you have no portion of the land of the living. But as David notes, God alone is sufficient to be our portion in the land of the living. The time will come. We will someday get rest. Isn't it amazing that the Apostle Paul seeks that? The Apostle Paul wants death for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. How disappointed Paul must have been. I didn't say this already, did I? How disappointed Paul must have been that nothing seemed to be able to kill him. They stone him to death, and he, comes, he somehow survives that. Every time they execute him, Paul must be thinking, finally, finally I get to go home. And then they can't kill him. Because he knows, like, apparently God's got something else for me to do. I've always imagined that, you know, the snake bites him, and he's like, finally, the shipwreck wouldn't kill me. Maybe finally the snake will do it. And then, dadgummit, the snake won't kill me. He shakes the snake off in the fire like, you know what, nothing, apparently I'm not supposed He was looking forward to it, but he didn't take his own life. He was ready. That's the Christian tension. We're ready. We know God has something for us. Look at what God has revealed in Romans 8. I'll close on this. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angel nor ruler nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that first phrase. I am sure that neither death, not even death can separate us from God's love. So get to know Jesus. He's a lover of your soul now and forever, even when we don't feel it. Put your faith in Him. Accept His purpose and His passion for your life if you don't have a purpose or a passion. If you do have a purpose or a passion for your life, let it be overruled by His, the abundant life He has for us. Let's pray. Father, I love how real Your Word is and how it speaks into what we really experience. And God, I, I pray that anyone in here who is wrestling with, who is facing suicidal thoughts, obsessive, intrusive, constant, depressed feelings of the desire or need to take their own life. I pray that they will get the help they need. Oh Lord, we are frail and we will struggle and we will fail. It is so comforting to know, Lord, that you have something for us here or you would have taken us home. Help us to be content in the fact that you know what you're doing. That somehow even our depression, even our hopelessness is going to serve your kingdom. And when it won't, you can take us when you're ready. It's your life, Lord, not ours. We have no right to life. It's your life. We are your creation. We are bear your image. Guide us, Lord, to put our faith in that truth, to get the help we need to live the abundant life you've called us to, that you offer to us. Thank you, Father, for the goodness of your Son and his faithfulness to us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who has sealed us and made us your own no matter what our state is when we die. And thank you that your will is right. And that we can trust in that. We pray it all in your son's name. Amen.